The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. Your hosts are Becky Olson and Sharon Hennepin. Our show is here to help breast cancer patients, survivors, their friends and family with the resources, support, and inspiration they can use right now. Here are your hosts, Sharon and Becky. Welcome to the Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. My name is Sharon Hennepin. I'm a 22-year survivor and one of the co-founders of Breast Friends. Becky's actually at a conference in California this week, so we actually have a guest co-host, Yvonne Nydigger. Woohoo! <laughs> and Yvonne is one of our board members here at Breast Friends. She's a key volunteer. Oh my gosh, you're what, a sur- six-year survivor? Six-year survivor. Stage yeah. three breast cancer, diagnosed May 1st, 2010. So Woo-hoo. I'm celebrating a lot of anniversaries this month. That's it's amazing. Wonderful. That's great. Well, and she does all of our, uh, not all, it's, it's it's a team effort, but like for our for our big events, she does a lot of our procuring, and and then she puts her special touches on our baskets, so everything looks amazing. We just had that this last weekend, so well, it's an honor and a privilege to work with this organization. I always find myself um, getting back to the roots of why we volunteer. You know, when people go through breast cancer and any kind of, of, of traumatic illness, there there's a tendency to want to pay forward and mm-hmm. to become a part of the community that really helps other people going through their battles. So, you know, it's an honor and a joy to work with you guys. Well, we're so glad you're here today with us to co-host. So um, I know we have a very important topic. Oh, my gosh. This is incredibly important, and we're going to talk about gynecological cancers and what makes them so hard to diagnose with our very special guest, Dr. Fabio Cappuccini from Compass Oncology. Dr. Cappuccini, welcome. We're so happy to have you here. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Good morning. Absolutely. Absolutely. And Dr. Cappuccini is a, an oncologist that treats all gynecological cancers with a particular interest in ovarian cancer and phase one and two clinical trials. Um, I actually had the pleasure of meeting uh, Dr. Cappuccini at the Issues Conference here in Portland, and I went to one of his sessions and he just he broke down some really critical information in a way that was understandable and i just knew i needed to have him on on our honor show yeah. to talk about these things yeah Thank so you. Yeah, we're so happy to have you. Um, I know you um, are also a pioneer in the early immuno, or how do you say that, immunotherapy research, Yeah, immunotherapy, right? yeah, yeah, for ovarian cancer, that is, has been, you know, an, uh, an old um, passion and one of the first projects that I was uh, involved with, and yes, it, it, tried, it, it was the the. At the very beginning, at the very beginning of uh, passive, uh, you know, in immunotherapy or passive vaccination for, for cancer. 
Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. And I think yeah. you were also one of the first surgeons to employ the advanced ovarian cancer debulking surgery, incorporating yeah. the upper abdomen. Why don't you talk about that a little bit? That's an interesting, I've never heard of that. Yeah, well, ovarian cancer, unfortunately, because of a very um, difficult symptoms to, uh, to be recognized by the patient and by the physician, is diagnosed in the vast majority of the patient at an advanced stage. So right. in the staging system from one to four, and you are all familiar in the staging system, we diagnose 80% of ovarian cancer patients are stage three and plus. Yeah. At that time, unfortunately, at that stage, the disease is already spread from the pelvis, which is the lower part of the abdomen where the genital organs are located. The disease is spread to the upper abdomen, okay, around the liver, around the spleen, around the the stomach, uh, oh, okay. underneath the diaphragm. And, uh, you know, at the beginning, gynecologic oncologists were only trained to debulk at the lower part of the pelvis that uh, is a very familiar anatomical location for us. Mm-hmm. Sure. But then we realized that we were doing just half of the job. And, you know, the disease, we were taking half of the disease out, leaving half of the disease in, and, uh, and it was not making too much sense. So about, you know, 15, I would say between 15 and 20 years ago, we start to adventure on the upper abdomen, okay? And uh, after my training, I went to Washington, D.C. to be retrained again by a colorectal, famous colorectal surgeon, in how to debulk the upper abdomen. And, uh, oh. and then, you know, uh, these techniques now are included in every, you know, gynecologic oncology training program across, across the nation. And, and Wonderful. Now, I was going yeah. to ask on that, Dr. Cappuccini, I uh, have a friend of mine who had recently gone through some um, upper GI issues and problems, and her particular doctor um, didn't seem terribly concerned when it first started, and it wasn't until it, it really got to the point where it was getting much more serious that they even looked into the upper stomach as being a possible um, reaction to ovarian cancer, which is mm. what it was. Yeah. And I, I, I just, I wondered if you, you know, with, with the new guidelines that are going on, are you seeing more and more doctors starting to really s- take a look at those kind of problems mm. in women as being a possible predecessor to ovarian cancer? Well, uh, first of all, I'm not surprised about the story of this friend of yours. That is a story, a story that we, you know, uh, unfortunately hear every, every single, from every single patient. Too many times. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, unfortunately, unfortunately, you know, there is not a very high grade of suspicion in, you know, primary care physician, sometimes even, you know, OB, general OBGYN or uh, internal medicine doctor in trying to um, uh, explore more the possibility of a malignancy. Number one, you know, ovarian cancer is not a common disease. We right. have about 25,000 new cases per year in this country. Okay. Breast cancer, 240,000. So is the you know breast cancer strike one in eight, ovarian cancer one in eighty, one in ninety, you know, and therefore you know there is not this uh, uh, suspicion in the 
from the treating physician and to trying to explore right. more. Sure. And what I always advocate and I always tell, you know, in talk like this, unfortunately, women need to be advocate for themselves. Amen. Yeah. If they yeah. have GI symptoms, okay, that do not go away, okay, right. for weeks, something needs to be done. Right. Maybe a referral to a gynecologist, maybe a referral to a gynecological oncologist, maybe taking some blood test, maybe do an ultrasound or a CT scan, but something needs to be done. It's not normal to have persistent GI symptoms and even worsening GI symptoms that are not going away. Yeah, right. and that was the thing that, um, you know, I came away, she had, um, you know, relied on this doctor for her treatment and had gone sure. back a number of times and was still led to believe that there was nothing serious wrong, and it wasn't until she kind of took matters into her own hand and said, you know, I'm going to go see someone else and get another opinion, mm-hmm. That, yeah. and I think that's the thing with women, we sometimes are more inclined to say, okay, you know, my doctor's telling me this, and I'm just going to go ahead and take that as the, the answer I need to hear, and we do, like you say, need to listen to our bodies and, and be proactive on our own to make that choice to branch our, our, our tests out into different parameters. So, yeah, well, and the, funny, th- the funny thing is, too, I mean, we want to hear we're fine. Yes, <laughs> right? true. Oh, well, we, I, 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 ab- absolutely. Every patient wants to hear I'm fine. Yeah, you know, exactly. So if your every, doctor every, says, I'm fine, I must be fine. Right? <laughs> yeah, but that is the first, uh, the first encounter. Right? Exactly. If you if you keep going back because you are not fine, exactly. And sometimes somebody keeps telling, "Oh, you are fine. Mm-mm. Don't worry." Well, I I think that at that point you need to start to worry a little bit and say, "Well, I, I you know, somebody needs to tell me, you know, why this is persisting and is not going away." Right, exactly. So it that goes makes back a to being proactive. It does. It yeah. absolutely and being your own best health advocate because again, we know our own bodies better than anyone. And absolutely. so being able to say what normal is and what not what normal is not and um and, and again speaking up and saying, No, this is not normal. Well, you know, and and for ovarian cancer specifically, unfortunately, you know, there have been a multitude of studies now that have been done, you know, with surveillance on 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 thousands of patients, and the patient all in the interview recalls the symptoms for at least six to seven months. Yeah. Now, yeah. now those studies can be biased. There can be some recollection bias. But still, you know, but still, you know, it's not confusing. It's not changing, you know, the outcome and the result of those studies that are very, unfortunately, very clear. Patient had symptoms for six, seven, eight months. They symptoms that did not go away. Symptoms that were, you know, worsening over time. And they have been told, you know, don't worry, it's nothing. Don't worry, it's nothing. Exactly. So let's let's go back a, a little bit because I know we jumped right into, into the uh, ovarian cancer, but that's not all you do. So tell us a little bit about <clears throat> maybe some of the other cancers that you deal with as well. Well, de- dealing with, uh, you know, my, my patients are all women, so, and with cancer and gynecologic cancer, but, you know, many of them have, a, you know, a second malignancy 
for example, they had a previous uh, breast cancer or a previous colon cancer. So uh, I, I, I deal with a multitude of, of problems, you know, of, you know, oncologic problems. And uh, and especially, you know, important for us as a gynecologic oncologist is the association between breast cancer and ovarian cancer, which yeah. unfortunately is very strong. Okay. Yes, yes, it can and, be certainly. Yeah, mm. and so we we see many, many, many patients with ovarian cancer that had a previous breast cancer, or we treat the ovarian cancer patient, and then, you know, years after, you know, that treatment, they develop breast cancer. Uh, now, <clears throat> we try to not let that happen, okay? We are much more uh, vigilant nowadays, right. uh, especially for patients that present with ovarian cancer, okay, especially, you know, patients that have high-grade papillary serous ovarian cancer, all these patients now are screened and tested for genetic mutation. Right, okay. right. Okay, especially in the BRC1 and 2 bar, the, you know, and the panel of the classic, you know, gene mutated for, for breast cancer. Right. And, uh, and that information is very important because we can prevent a possible... Uh, second malignancy, number one. Number mm-hmm. two, if they have mutated, you know, genes, they can be uh, a candidate for certain type of treatment that are not, you know, uh, available for patients that have no genetic mutation. And, and of course, those patients have sister, mother, and daughters, and, and relatives. So that is right. is a very important information to to, to, to have. Exactly. Yeah, to have all of that, so you really can give that that patient kind of the best overall, you know, direction for what she needs to look at, and and yeah. her whole family really too. Yeah. And when I was going through treatment, um, I had uh, quite a, a short conversation with my uh, team about the BRCA test. This was obviously six yeah. years ago before things were a lot more uh, focused on it. And it was really focused around, did I have any history in my family of breast cancer? Uh, the fact that there wasn't any strong indication that there was history in the family. And I also don't have any siblings or children, female children. So, you know, at that time they kind of said, well, you know, you really don't need to have the bracket test. And obviously you're in a position where you go, oh, okay, well, that's fine. Then I won't have it. But in hindsight, I look back and I wonder if for my own peace of mind of knowing what my risks are for developing ovarian cancer, if it's something I should have. Well, uh, I think that for your specific case, you know, the best way to start is to have a consultation with a genetist or Mm -hmm, a genetic mm -hmm. counselor. Okay, right. and and trying to build your algorithm of risk. Okay, mm-hmm. oh. and if the risk is high enough to warrant a genetic testing, of course that can be ordered and done. Sure, okay. sure. Okay. Sounds now, like now, I need go back need to go back to square one and ask some more questions. Which again, I think a lot of women when they're when they're first going through treatment, we we don't necessarily know all the questions to ask and to absolutely. You know, yeah. once once things have cut, the dust has settled, so to speak, um, it, yeah. it is important to continue to to ask those questions. So thank you. Yeah. 
Yeah. So what are the risk factors, Dr. Um, Cappuccini? What, what would you say the risk factors are for gynecological cancers? Well, uh, for gynecological cancer, well, let, let me tackle this, you know, question a little more broadly, if you, if you uh, allow me. Okay. I am a strong believer that the vast majority of cancer could be prevented. Okay. okay. Wow. All right. So, uh, unfortunately, prevention is not systematically applied to the population for several reasons. Um, prevention is very expensive, even though it's less expensive than cancer treatment. Sure. Funny <laughs> how that <laughs> <You> works. <laughs> because you know you have to, you know you have to realize that a ovarian cancer patient by the end of the treatment. Considering everything, is one point five two million dollars a girl. Unbelievable! Holy cow! Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, that's a lot. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yes, considering you know, uh, diagnosis, uh, testing, uh, radiologic imaging, surgery, hospital admission, multiple hospital admission, multiple rounds of uh, chemotherapy, more surgery, more radiology, more PET scan, more CT scan, and. You know, by the end of many years, okay, that is what we are going to spend for a patient with ovarian cancer. I don't think that the money spent for a patient with breast cancer or colon cancer is much different than that. No. no. My husband yeah. always said I was the million-dollar girl, so. Million-dollar <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Now, if we consider the five most common cancer in women in this country, in North, West Europe, and Canada, are breast, number one, lungs, number two, colon, number three, uterus, number four, ovaries, number five. Okay? Oh, wow. Okay. That totals for over 800,000 new patients per year. Mm. Wow. Wow. How many many was that? 800,000? Is that what you said? Yes. Wow. Yes. Well, okay. we have 240,000 new cases for breast cancer, right? And then right, we have, right. We have 110,000 new cases of lung cancer, right? We right. have 80,000 new cases of colon cancer, 55,000 new cases of uterine cancer, 25 to 28,000 new cases of breast cancer, okay? Oh, of, of, of uterine cancer, sorry, of ovarian cancer. So we have a, a lot of patients with cancer. This cancer could be prevented. Yeah. Prevention, as I told you before, is very expensive, okay? The ROI for prevention is very small, mm-hmm. okay? And we are making money on treating cancer. If we could right. prevent cancer, hospital would be out of business. I would not have a job. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's true, but you know, and neither would I. But at the same time, yeah, you know, it's one of those things. <laughs> well, we have to take a quick break, Doctor um, Cappuccini. Sure. So hang on to that thought. Okay. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. Every day, you hear so much about different aspects of the health and wellness field. One day, you hear one thing, and the next day, you hear something that contradicts what you heard the day before. How do you know what's right? Try tuning in to The Cutting Edge of Health and Wellness today with Dr. Neil Nathan. 
Our goal is to educate and explore this field with guest experts in order to help you take control of your health and well-being. Listen Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Thank you for listening today. Breast Friends needs your support. We rely on donations to keep our doors open and to keep this radio program alive. Please consider making a tax-deductible donation to Breast Friends. You can visit us at breastfriends.org. You can also like us on Facebook at Breast Friends of Oregon. Be sure to tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time for Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. Visit breastfriends.org and contribute today. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. You are tuned into Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. To reach the program today, please call us at 1 866 472 5792. Again, that's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Becky at breastfriends.org. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to our program. We've been talking about ovarian and other gynecological cancers with Dr. Cappuccini. So you were talking before the break about the risk factors and... Yeah, 800,000 women. Yeah, women are diagnosed with, you know, with cancer every year. And the vast majority, as I was telling you, is, in my opinion, and not just in my opinion, preventable in a very significant number of these patients. And, and you know, unfortunately, the risk factor, as I will tell you very soon in a second, are very, very similar, unfortunately. Okay. So, the things, the barrier to prevention, as I was telling you before, is that nobody's making any money preventing <laughs> disease. We are making money curing cancer, unfortunately. Right. Prevention is not sexy. Nobody will ever do a brilliant academic career on prevention. Nobody mm-hmm. will ever win a Nobel Prize for science in prevention. We do that only when we discover new drugs or new diagnosis or new way to treat cancer. So the whole thing is in the battle of treating cancer that, of course, is very important and needs to keep going and progress day after day. But I think that we should take a moment, okay, and think... Spend a little more time on prevention, yeah, you know, no, no, just prevention. Gen- and I okay. think prevention so, is education as well, don't you well, think? Well, it is a fundamental part. So let's start with breast cancer. Okay. Most, co- most common disease in the, uh, cancer disease in the United States and North America and, uh, sorry about that, and uh, <laughs> um, in Canada in women. Risk factors, 10% is genetic. Okay, we know that 10% of those patients have mutated gene. 15% is on a familiar basis. That means that there are for sure some genes that are mutated, and we do not know that yet. Okay, Uh, but however, if we could screen, okay, population, okay, all the women at the age of 34, genetic mutation, okay, we could certainly, you know, reduce the 240,000, okay, by 24,000 new cases per year. 
Okay. Mm. Are you talking and, about the BRCA test? Yeah, the BRCA test. Okay. Fortunately, we cannot do that on a population-based approach because it's very expensive. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. Mm-hmm. Because it's very expensive. Okay, and don't you feel other- that some people, when they hear the information that they do have the BRCA positive gene, tend to not necessarily overreact, but there's a bit of a hysteria that's attached to that? Understandably so. Yeah. Right. If, right. If, you think, if you think about it, you know, you know that this, there is something in your genome that will make you very susceptible to breast and ovarian cancer. Right. right. It's frightening. And you can be more, at least more proactive about making sure that you are following the exactly. possible symptoms. Exactly. Now, so just doing that, we could do, reduce the number of new cases by 10%. Okay, then the other 15% are on familiar basis. So that means that if every physician could take a moment to collect a very comprehensive family history, okay, we could spot the vast majority of those other, you know, 40,000 possibly new cancer, breast cancer patient, and we could start a very, very tight surveillance in order to prevent, you know, more disease or in order to catch them at a very early stage. And I think families need to be aware that, you know, not just your direct family, but your extended family. I come from a family, my my father had nine siblings, my mother had six, and there's lots of cousins and what have you. And because of the way families are now, we're all spread out around the United States. And I think as families, if we were to sit down and say, you know, we need to share this information. If someone in the family has had a condition that could be diagnosed as a genetic condition, we need to make sure as families that we're more of a village that we're not so isolated i i'm such a firm believer in in getting out there and talking about the people around me about how important that is to know your family history mm-hmm. so well and it's also not even just your siblings it's your parents and your grandparents and your aunts and uncles and and yeah. you know the the tricky part is and i'm sure you've seen this dr uh, cappuccino cappuccini is the um the um the connection uh, of cancer. I mean, back, what is it, 40 years ago, you didn't even say cancer out loud. They called it the C word, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so they didn't even even talk about it. And so a lot of times, you know, you didn't know that your aunt, you know, on your dad's side right. had blah, 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 you yeah, know. They passed away so young yeah. that it wasn't, you know, there was and more And you didn't than, talk about no, it. No, no, it was like, oh, she had a stomach condition and, you know, right. it probably was some sort of Ovarian you know, gynecological cancer, or, cancer. You know, Absolutely. something like that. Yeah. So, no, I know exactly what you're saying. Yeah, well, that is very important. And going back to the risk factor for breast cancer, the most important the risk factor, okay, after the genetic cases that are about, you know, altogether 25%, right. the most important risk factor is obesity. Oh, yeah. Yes. Okay? And that's so, actually something we so, have control over. <laughs> right. So that is why I like to call all this cancer environmental. Environmental is, a, is, the, is where we live, is what yeah. we eat is what we do, and obesity, unfortunately, is, again, the most important risk factor for colon cancer. Oh, wow. Is the most important risk factor for uterine cancer. 
is okay. very important risk factor for ovarian cancer. So except for lung cancer that in 90% of the cases is caused by smoking, okay, the most important risk factor for all the other major cancer in female is obesity or problems that are strictly correlated with obesity. Okay, okay. that makes sense. Now, now, obesity does not need to be treated. Obesity needs to be prevented. Right. Starting young. Starting young. Okay, because a child that is obese will most likely be obese in adolescent, it will be obese as a young adult or teenager, and will be obese all his or her life. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's so scary these days because so many of the this generation, we were outside playing, you know, we were running, we were, we the, this business of being in front of the computer or the television or on the phone, you know, they're not moving as much as we did. And I can't help think that that doesn't contribute in a huge way to all the future problems that they're going to have because they're just not, they're not as active. Their bodies aren't getting that extra energy from being in that active state when they're young. And not only that, but only what they eat and how they eat it. Oh, amen. And, yeah, and, and, so and how it's cook it for them. And, and the, you know, 30% of the pediatric population in this country, unfortunately, is obese. Okay. How many? How much percent? About thirty percent. Wow, that's okay. amazing. It's okay. like it's like the adult population, you know. And the problem is that the American Pediatric Association now changed, okay, changed the definition of obesity, okay, because they don't want to traumatize the kids, which I understand, okay. But we need to say that how it is. If a child is obese or is overweight. Maybe we don't want to call him fat for sure, but we'll try to help him. Right. Exactly. And it's it's not done systematically. We let Mm -hmm. it happen. Okay. McDonald's, okay. McDonald's, big SP500 company who is donating millions of dollars to build the McDonald's house next to the pediatric hospitals where family can stay for free while the kids is having treatment for cancer, are making our kids fat. Yeah. That is it, what McDonald's it, does. It's, it's kind of, um, yeah, the, and, and like the, the tobacco company doing the same sort of thing, you know. Tobacco, and, ta- and, tobacco company invested in tax-shielded, you know, money in, in, in breast cancer research. Exactly. For years, <laughs> for, years for decades. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think it's more than just, you know, when, when a child goes in and, and the, the family's told that the child has an issue with weight, uh, I think it starts at home. You know, you have to start making healthy choices. And it's not just for the child. I think there are families out there that um, if the adults are setting a bad example, if, if parents are not eating healthy, if parents are not exercising and getting outside, I think, you know, nowadays we have to be the ones that set the standards for how our children are going to survive in the future and if we don't start as adults and parents 
teaching them the right tools to get that out of their own lives, you know, we're really dropping the ball. And that's where I see the problem because so many times, you know, you see a child who's overweight, but then you look at the family and you think, okay, there's definitely something going on here. Yeah, it's not just the child, it's the family. And, you know, I think that's that's part of the parent's responsibility, whether it's taking a hard look at themselves and saying, I need to live a healthier lifestyle for the sake of my children. Um, You know, because kids kids are going to do what they see. Absolutely. And again, with all of our working moms and and all of that, um, you know... Sometimes we take the easy way out, you know, and you go through the drive-thru at McDonald's and you, right. you know, do these things Everything that are... Everything in moderation. Exactly. Yeah. You know, well, that's if, a treat, if, if that's it, fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if it happens occasionally, it's not that the problem, you know. The problem is, is, is when it's done as a lifestyle that is perpetually... You know, yeah, that makes and, sense. That makes sense. And, and, and I think and, people uh, need to know that it makes a difference. It's and, not just about how good your child looks in a swimming suit. It's about how healthy your child is. Mm-hmm. And it's not something that we can just say, oh, you know, I, I'm not worried about being her, her being a little heavier because of, you know, this or that or the other reason. It's because we want to have healthier children that live healthy lives. So, yeah. right. And, and you know, f- family, family have a lot of responsibility and family, you know, lifestyle changes are very important. But to us as a provider, as a health provider, yeah, I don't exactly. think that we do a, a very good job. We let it happen. Yeah. We let right. it happen. I see patients that are coming with BMI that are off the chart. And, you know, physicians are always treating, you know, the hypertension, the, the, hyper, uh, the high cholesterol, the um, uh, diabetes. All of these conditions are unfortunately caused by obesity. But yeah. do we do a very aggressive job in trying to make those patients lose weight? Unfortunately, I don't think so because yeah. they require a lot of energy. Yeah, and we don't have medication for to do exactly. that. You know, you there's, have high blood pressure. A, we we give you medication. We exactly, there's not yeah. a quick fix for yeah. it. That's yeah. for sure. Yeah. So. You have diabetes. We give you insulin. We keep your blood sugars down. You know, right, but to right, make right. you lose 100 pounds is yeah. a, a huge project. It is. So we were thinking we might switch gears for a moment. We know that ovarian cancer is a silent killer. And what we'd like to know from you, doctor, is why is it so difficult to catch early? And what can we do to kind of stop that cycle of it becoming such a serious disease? What are the things that can that we can notice in our lives that are going to tell us we need to be more aware and, and be checking into this? What are the symptoms? Okay. So mild gastrointestinal symptoms, okay, that keep, you know, uh, that do not go away. For example, feeling, feeling distended, mm-hmm. obstipation, that means, you know, maldigestion uh, or indigestion, um, vague abdominal pain or pressure, pelvic pain or pressure, uh, frequent urination, Okay, is another very important one. Early satiety, that means you cannot eat a normal lunch or meal for you without feeling full very soon after a few bites. 
Okay? Interesting. Those symptoms, unfortunately, are very mild, very vague. You know? mm-hmm. And unfortunately, women throughout their life experience those symptoms from time to time. Right, okay? right, right. Yeah. If I'm not yeah. taking my probiotics, I definitely am. <laughs> yes, yes. But when, when especially, you know, these symptoms happen in a postmenopausal patient, you know, in a patient between the age of 55 to 65, 70, and they do not go away, they need to be investigated further. Mm-hmm. So now the testing um, around, especially ovarian cancer, there really isn't a test other than maybe the, the blood test, that CA-125. Um, do you ever use that for diagnostic purposes, though? Well, I, well, I use it. I, I, I discourage it to use it as a screening tool. Okay. okay. Because, unfortunately, it's been shown over and again that we can get too many false positive yeah. okay. with the lead to unnecessary, you know, surgery and stuff like that. But if the patient is symptomatic, the symptoms do not go away, the patient should be referred to a gynecologist or the gynecological oncologist. The patient needs a very thorough physical examination, pelvic examination, we start from that, okay? And then ultrasound or CAT scan, CT scan of the abdomen and pelvis. And then at that point, if we find findings that are suspicious, we can add to that a CA125. And if it's very elevated, okay, that is important as diagnostic workup. Mm-hmm. Okay. Unfortunately, I can tell you that as we are right now, it would be, very, very difficult to catch this disease at the very early stage in the vast majority of patients. Okay, okay. But, certainly we, but certainly we could do much better. Every patient that I interview with ovarian cancer has been having symptoms for six to seven months. Mm-hmm. Okay. So and the and the te- so testing for it there really isn't a test at this point like a mammogram for, is it, for breast or cancer. a colonoscopy no it's there is for not watching for the the symptoms so again you go back to being your best health advocate yep, that's exactly. really what what yeah. women need to be doing yeah. yeah so just paying attention to our bodies and and uh, and reacting to those yeah and uh, you know if somebody tells you that you are fine once is okay twice still okay but if it happened you know several times it's not sure. okay yeah well it looks like we're getting ready to go out to break again doctor i hope we okay. can continue to pick your brain on this it's been amazing and i would like to encourage callers if you have a question for dr fabio and you'd like to call in we'd love to hear from you the number is one eight six six four seven two five seven nine two or if you have a question for Sharon or myself, we'd love to hear from you. So yes, thank you. We'll be back in a few minutes. Step into a healthier you. Voice America Health and Wellness. Thank you for listening today. Breast Friends needs your support. We rely on donations to keep our doors open and to keep this radio program alive. Please consider making a tax-deductible donation to Breast Friends. You can visit us at breastfriends.org. You can also like us on Facebook at Breast Friends of Oregon. 
Be sure to tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time for Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. Visit breastfriends.org and contribute today. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. You are tuned into Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. To reach the program today, please call us at 1 866 472 5792. Again, that's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Becky at breastfriends.org. Now, back to the show. Well, we've been talking to Dr. Um, Fabio Cappuccini about gynecological cancers. So let's just kind of pick up where we, where we left off. So no testing really available, listening to your body. Those are biggies right there. Um, let's talk about advanced ovarian cancer since, like you said, um, most of the cancers that are found are actually um, at advanced stages. Yes, at advanced stages, so that means that the cancer already spread outside the ovaries, okay, to the other part of the abdomen, from okay. you know the upper abdomen to the to the lower abdomen and the pelvis. So uh, the best therapeutic approach is to try to debulk the disease. That means to try to take out as much cancer as possible surgically, and then to leave chemotherapy to deal with a residual small tumor, okay? Fortunately, ovarian cancer patient in about 80% of the cases are very, very responsive to chemotherapy. There is a 15 to 20%, unfortunately, that have chemotherapy-resistant disease and they will not do very well overall. Mm. But the vast majority of the patient, yes. So, first thing to... To, to try to understand is if the patient is fit for surgery, is a good candidate for surgery, and if we go in, it's possible to remove as much disease we can. Okay? There is no much advantage to do a surgery leaving bulky disease. Okay? So, but let's assume that. Uh, we operate on this patient, we take out the vast majority of the disease, and then the patient needs to be further treated with chemotherapy. Uh, the best approach nowadays is to give chemotherapy directly inside the abdomen every oh. three weeks. It's called intraperitoneal chemotherapy. Mm. Okay. Uh, stuff, take, it's toxic. Uh, the patient needs to be supported and needs to be cared for uh, very uh, aggressively and uh, constantly, but that is the best approach we have nowadays. And we can have patient alive and without disease for, for many years now. It's very encouraging. Uh, 
For yeah. patients that are not surgical candidate because are too debilitated, too frail, too sick, or because we understand from CT scan or CAT scan or PET scan or even physical examination that a surgical effort would not be you know, optimal in the sense to debulk the vast majority of the disease, the best approach for those patients is to give them chemotherapy up front, intravenously, okay, for uh-huh. three to six rounds every three weeks, and then take them to surgery, try to remove what is left after the chemotherapy treatment, okay? So do an interval surgery, what we call, and then mm-hmm. after that, again, more chemotherapy, which could be delivered inside the abdomen at this point, intraperitoneally or, you know, intravenously. Okay. Uh, that sounds patient, aggressive, but you need to be aggressive with this kind of cancer, that's for sure. Well, yes. Unfortunately, the treatment for, for advanced ovarian cancer is, 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 is aggressive and, you know, it comes with complication and toxicity and, uh, and side effects. Yeah, yeah. Doctor, is there a lymph node dissection that's done in ovarian cancer like there is in breast cancer? Uh, only for a very early stage ovarian cancer, stage one, okay, so that unfortunately are, are not very many and uh, are found incidentally, you know, patient that goes in for an ovarian cyst and we found that it's a cancer. And then at that point, yes, there is a systematic lymphadenectomy. It's called it staging to make sure that the disease is not staged, is not spread to the lymph node. See, okay. disease only limited to the ovary would be stage one. Disease, you know, spread to the lymph node would be stage three, completely change the treatment plan. Sure, sure does. That makes sure. sense. Yeah. yeah. It goes from early stage to later stage or more advanced. Yeah. Exactly. In case of, you know, advanced cases of ovarian cancer, we do not do systematically a lymphadenectomy because our goal is to remove the bulk of the disease. Now, if the lymph nodes are, you know, involved by a large amount of disease, that is part of the operation. Sure. Otherwise, sure. we don't we don't do it systematically. Okay. So I've got a, I've got a question. So mm. being a um, breast cancer survivor, of course, I'm 22 years out. Um, I'm not really using my ovaries. I'm not using all that stuff inside <laughs> of me any longer. Um, do people just opt to take um, all that stuff out if if it's yeah. working yeah. properly yeah. <laughs> as a preventative measure? Yes. Yes, some in 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 some patient is is indicated. You know, patient that have uh, that had you know breast cancer at early age, patient that had the so-called triple positive breast cancer, which are estrogen, progesterone receptor positive, and overexpressed in R2 new. Uh, those are strong indication. Then and could significantly uh, reduce the uh, the risk of recurrent breast cancer, okay. uh, or in the other breast, or in the same breast if it's, if it's treated, you know, for for with a lumpectomy or, uh, or something like that. Uh, okay. There are other patients that I would be very. Um, careful with patients that have, you know, important family history, but are, uh, uh, do 
not have genetic uh, mutations that we can uh, diagnose yet. And of course, all the patients that have BRC1 or 2 mutations, those patients, right. you know, right. uh, you know, is a prophylactic or better to say risk-reducing operation for possible future ovarian cancer is strongly indicated. Yeah, especially for the BRCA1 and 2. I know I've talked to yeah. a lot of women who've chosen to do the oophorectomy yeah. um, from from their doctor's uh, suggestions of, yeah. of reducing that risk, absolutely. Yeah. So I want to make sure before our time completely gets away from us that we really are able to kind of touch on your key messages that you want to make sure our listeners um, know about. So do you have something in particular you really want to make sure that maybe we that we haven't talked about or reemphasize something we have talked no, about? No, I, I think that we cover, we cover the, 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 a, lot, a lot of ground today. We and, did, uh, didn't we? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, and I thank you for that, to, to give me the opportunity. I would say that summarizing, I would say for ovarian cancer, the very important key message is look at the symptom, be cognizant of the symptoms, do not overlook them, and if the symptoms do not go away, you know, try to be an advocate for yourself and try to get them investigated further. Mm-hmm. Uh, every patient postmenopausal with vaginal bleeding it should be seen by a gynecologist. Okay, that is the number one, you know, symptoms for uterine cancer. Um, uh, and then, uh, of course, it, 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 prevention, prevention, and prevention, and prevention. Yeah. So yeah. try to, to try yeah. to lose weight. Uh, having a regular colonoscopy, starting at the age of 50 if you don't have family history or, you know, and and again, 10 to 15% of all colon cancer are familiar and genetic, okay? Mm -hmm. Um, Regular mammogram, okay? Do your own breast examination. If something feels strange or unusual, go see a doctor and, again, be an advocate for yourself. Many patients can get the nodule by themselves. They know that they have something that is strange in their breast. Right, right, okay. right. That makes sense. So, um, you know, there's so many things to talk about when you're talking about ovarian cancer and other, um, you know, uh, gynecological cancers. It did actually surprise me when you said that uterine cancer was actually more prevalent than ovarian cancer. So are there symptoms that we need to be listening to our bodies about that most, one as well? Yes. Most, most common symptom is abnormal vaginal bleeding. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, if yeah. you, so every patient in postmenopause with vaginal bleeding needs to be seen and needs to have an endometrial biopsy. Okay. Mm-hmm. I have a who's had two of those. Patients, and, mm-hmm. yeah, patients it's... that are perimenopausal and have very abnormal vaginal bleeding, you know, need to see a gynecologist and that should be addressed with an endometrial biopsy or a pelvic ultrasound to see the thickness of the lining internally, you know, on the uterus, make sure that there is not, not a cancer. Uterine cancer is so relevant, unfortunately, because... More than all the others, breast, colon, ovaries, obesity is the most important risk factor. Right, right, right. So really trying to eat right. And I know, I know we had a, a few minutes to chat about your, your philosophy of eating right. And I think, I, I remember, don't eat after 7 o'clock. I thought that was a good one. Yeah, never kind of a, after 7 o'clock. Yeah. Okay. 
And what was uh, the other one? I can't remember. Yeah, try not to go to, to sleep after 10.30 at night. Okay? Oh, that's right. Unfortunately, <laughs> the cortisol, you know, rhythm are going absolutely out of, of, of the regular, you know, rhythm. And, 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 and then the calories are just... Uh, yeah, just burn, keeping your calorie stay. count down. Uh-huh. Yeah. I'm so excited, Doctor. My garden is growing, and I'm eating fresh lettuce and radishes out of my garden every day in my salad. So, yeah, good for you. Yes, for I, you. I, I think we all need to, to look around us in the earth because, boy, there's sure a lot of healing that comes out of that if we can get back to eating our greens and eating our vegetables. Yeah. And, 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 you know, I'm not, I'm not an ex- I don't go to the stream, but if somebody just tried to eat portion size, okay, yes. non-processed food, cook it lean, do not use a you know, ton of butter, don't use a ton of oils or sauces or something like that. It's not, I mean, in principle, it's not that difficult, but I agree with you, it requires time, will, and it's not cheap. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right, yeah. yeah. So yeah. when you're, if you're pinching pennies, um, yeah. you know, just, yeah. to, just to get your kids' shoes, yeah, I mean, you yeah. you do end up going yeah. through the McDonald's drive through or yeah. you're, yeah. you know, Fre- got a, fresh- a million things on your plate. So, yeah, yeah. slow fresh down. Kale, fresh kale, unfortunately, is, is expensive compared yeah. to other food, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. true. True. So just, again, portion sizes, I think that's huge. I know um, just paying attention sometimes. I know I was on some diet some time back, and and I had to weigh my food, and I hated having to do that. But it yeah. really gave me a better sense of what I was actually putting in my body yeah. and, and what, a, what a normal size portion really was. You know, so it's important, I think, to do that. You know, and even when you go to the restaurant, there are some tricks that you can use. You know, for example, the portion in, in, in American restaurant, the vast majority are too big. We know that, okay? Yeah. So maybe try to order an entree and tell the waiter, okay, please box half of it and take me the other half that I will eat it tonight. And, <laughs> and I'm you won't be tempted. For lunch <laughs> sure. tomorrow. Yeah, that's brilliant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Put well, we the sauce on it. the side, so then you have control of that. That is all extra calories. Yes. You can control that. You know, you can it's, control what you eat, even at the restaurant. Okay. We did something in our family that has worked, and that is we went to the salad plate as our dinner plate. And yeah. my husband and I now use those as our dinner plates. And it's Absolutely. strange when we go someplace and there's a big plate in front of us because it feels out of proportion. Yeah, yeah. it would. It yeah. would. That's, a, that's another yeah. good little trick, too. But yeah. I know my husband and I try when we go to a, a restaurant, we, we, we have similar tastes, thank goodness. So usually we can split something also. Yeah. So it's kind of that same sort of concept where, you know, you eat half, I eat half. And, and if we need more food, we can order more food you know if we're actually still hungry but most of the time we're fine um and then of course you know sometimes that way i have room for dessert (laughs) (laughs) which i know that's not in this program uh that's not in the calorie counting but you know again everything in moderation i don't do it every day Uh, every once in a while okay if you are careful all week long and then here it comes saturday night and you want to treat yourself do it that is okay 
Exactly. Exactly. It's just okay. what we do it every day and every meal it, that it catches it, up it, with it, us. Exactly. But, <laughs> you know, yeah, but eating a big portion and eating over, you know, over proportion every night, that is not okay. Yeah, that yeah. isn't okay. But I think the thing about, again, not um, eating past 7 o'clock, that's something that you can you can do, generally speaking, um, so that way you have time to digest your food before you go to bed. And if, Well, if you, you know, best things to do would be to have done with dinner by 7. Uh-huh. Now there is sun out, go out and take a mile-long walk. Yeah, that's a good that's a good habit. Well, you know what? We've so enjoyed having oh you on goodness. the on the show, Dr. My um, pleasure. Cappuccini. So, we we um do have to let you go now. We're kind of at the end of our time, but we will be back next week. And until then, remember, there's always hope and we are here to help you find it. Thanks. Uh, okay. Bye-bye. Thank everyone. you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. Please join Sharon Hannafin and Becky Olson again next Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. There is always hope, and we'll help you find it. We'll talk again next time.